So we are going to start 2 Samuel chapter 1 tonight. 1 Samuel, I call it the road to the king. They begin as a theocracy and they move to a monarchy in 1 Samuel. 2 Samuel, I call it the ruin of the king. Because if you know this story, David in 1 Samuel is just a stallion. Like he just, he, he can do no wrong. He gets elevated and elevated. The people begin to say of the king Saul, hey, Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed 10,000, right? So he's just through the roof, successful. Saul starts to kind of get mad at that, so he wants to kill David, and he does this. He says, David, I want you to marry my daughter. And David's like, I'm, I'm poor, you know, there's no way I can do this, can't afford it, you know. Saul's like, no problem, here's what I want. Here's the payment. I want 100 Philistine, Philistine foreskins. Now, right there, if it's me, I'm like, I'm out. You know, she's awesome and everything, but sorry, dude. <laughs> I'm gonna find somebody else. Not David, he goes and gets 200, right? That's just what he does. It's over, it's brilliant, it's woo, okay? So that's been 1 Samuel. We come into 2 Samuel, in chapter one through 10, he still got it. I call those chapters the Midas touch. But then chapter 11 through 21, I call it the Murphy touch. Because everything goes bad. Using more biblical language, you could put it this way. It's when David is obedient, he has God's blessing. When God, David begins to be disobedient, he is under the curse of sin. And it's written in Deuteronomy. It's called the Deuteronomic curse, right? You read chapter four of Deuteronomy, chapter 28 of Deuteronomy, and it's do these things and you will be blessed. Do these things and your life will be cursed. And it's exactly what you see in the life of David. And then the end of the book, verses 22 through 24, it's almost like an addendum, right? It kind of adds in and it ends extremely ominous. Like, whoa, that's a weird way to end the life of King David. It's almost the good, the bad, and the ugly, all right? So that's 2 Samuel, and we're jumping in. It's brilliant. If you're new and you're just joining us, let me catch you up. This would have been like one scroll. It's one book, right? It, it gets divided because sometimes they didn't have scrolls long enough, and so they would divide it. So here's what we've seen so far. David's a hero, right? Emerging out of 1 Samuel, David's the hero. He kills Goliath. He does all that. Saul becomes envious of David. One day, David's in his courtroom, and he's playing some music for Saul, and Saul picks up his spear and tries to pin David to the wall. And David's like, hey, next time, just tell me you don't like that song. I'll change it. No problem, bro, right? So it gets worse and worse. He starts to run from Saul. Saul hunts him down and just wants to kill him. Eventually, David just says, I can't live in Israel anymore. So David has run out, and he begins to live with the Philistines, the enemy of Israel. He's living with the enemy. And it's during these hard times, which could have lasted up to a decade, that David has to answer this question, does he believe that God's in control? He's got a promise in chapter 16, you're going to be king. And it seems tenuous for 10 years, like what? This is hard. So he's got to get the answer. Do I trust God? 
in hard times. And God's going to demonstrate his control. And I think sometimes it actually takes hard times for us to begin to trust God. Because if everything's great, you don't need to trust God. It's the hard times. So the end of 1 Samuel is he goes out to go to battle against his people. He's with the Philistine army. He's going to be fighting against Israel. As they're marching out, the other kings say, "Uh uh-uh, tell that guy to go home. So David is told, hey, you can't fight with us. So he heads home. He thinks he's going home to his house. But when he rounds the corner, comes over the, the bluff, he looks down in his town of Ziklag, burned to the ground. His wife, his wives, his children, everything he has, gone. He doesn't know if they're alive or dead. And it says there that the people wept until they had no strength to weep anymore. Like we lost everything. They could all be slaughtered. And then the next thing they do is this. The people, his friends, his soldiers, guys he had raised up and trained, they spoke of stoning David. And David does something there that becomes the mark of his life from that point forward. It says, but David encouraged himself in the Lord. That becomes his difference. Finally, he gets it. Finally, he graduates, if you would. This is what God's been after. He gets it. And it's like that momentous change happens after that. And you read the Psalms, and how many times does David in the Psalms have what I call soul talk? Oh, my soul, why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God. Remember Ziklag. Do you ever do soul talk? One of the most important to me spiritual disciplines is soul talk. I don't listen to my feelings. Feelings are fickle. I talk to my feelings. Wait a second, Matt. Why are you feeling this way? Hope in God, right? So he has just run off to that army that took all of his stuff. They defeat that army. They rescue everything. They're coming back. They are bloody. They are bruised. They're exhausted. And they get home and we pick it up in 2 Samuel, verse one. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. David said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, how did it go? Tell me. And he answered, the people fled from the battle. And also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Three days go by. David is 90 miles away from where the battle happened on Mount Gilboa. So this guy has been traveling 30 miles a day to get to David to bring this news. Imagine not getting news for three days. 
that would be 99.9999999% of history when there's no Twitter and no internet and no newsfeed and no Facebook, right? That news moved as fast as somebody could walk. Wouldn't that be great? I mean, what would change if you didn't get news on the day it came out? What would change, right? What would change if you heard about it a day or two or three late? What would change? Your mood, you'd be a lot happier. Because you'd be like, that's already old news. Why do we even care now? But instead, we got this news feed that just hammers us every day. We're like, ah, it's crazy to me. I think it's better when news moved at the pace of what someone could walk. And this guy comes and he staged it, didn't he? He's tore his clothes. He's put dirt on his head. Whenever someone does it, you go, hmm, are you an actor or are you real? And he comes and says to David, a bunch of people died and Saul and Jonathan. Just think about this, what David has been through right now. He's on the run. He's running from Saul. He's ended up in these kind of battles that he shouldn't be in. He's murdering people he shouldn't be murdering. His city has been burned down. He had to run after them and capture them. His own good, close friends want to stone him for that. They're blaming him. Now the king of Israel and his best friend are dead. Have you noticed that bad always comes in waves? Right? It just seems like, how how can it get any worse right now? Don't even ask that. Because you'll find out real quick. Bad almost always comes in waves. And sometimes it jades us. Jacob, back in Genesis, thought Joseph had been killed, has to send down some people to get some food because they're starving to death. And when they're down there, Simeon is taken while they're in Egypt. And then they gotta go down and get some more. And the remaining 10 brothers, sons of his, tell him, hey, if we don't take Benjamin, then, hey, he's not gonna give us any food. And Jacob just freaks out. It's Genesis 42, 36. He goes, Joseph is dead, Simeon's dead, and now Benjamin's gonna die. It's just gonna get worse and worse and worse and worse. That's what can happen when it's wave after wave after wave. And we've gotta guard ourselves against that. Because here's what the Bible should teach us. It should teach us that God can draw straight with crooked lines. We think, what's happening, all this? Well, the trajectory though, Matt, the trajectory, God draws straight with crooked lines. And it's what David's gonna learn. So here's what he does. Then David said to the young man who told him, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, by chance, I happened to be on Mount Gilboa. And there was Saul leaning on his spear. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And he looked behind him and he saw me and called to me. And I answered, here I am. And he said to me, who are you? And I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, stand beside me and kill me for anguish has seized me and my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm and I have brought them here to my Lord. 
So David hears the news, but he's like, wait, wait, hold on a second. Prove it. Fake news is not something new. It's been happening for thousands and thousands of years, right? Prove it. And so David listens carefully, and here's what he knows. First, some of the truth. The spear of Saul. Wasn't Saul always with his spear? Tries to pin David twice with it. Tries to pin Jonathan, his own son, with it. When they creep into his camp, David and Abishai creep into Saul's camp, and they find Saul, his spear is right by his head. It's like Thor's hammer. He's always got a spear. So he's like, okay, that makes sense. He's got his crown and a bracelet. It'd be that kind of thing that like, if you see old pictures or whatever, men would wear a bracelet kind of above their elbow. He had these two pieces. So David's like, okay. Now we know how Saul died. We got that information in, in 1 Samuel. David has not a clue. No news has got to him. So he's now listening and trying to, piece it together. Is this right? We know that the story this guy is bringing doesn't match up with reality, but David does not know that. But it gets sketchy a little bit because he says, verse six, by chance, I happened to be on Mount Gilboa. That'd be like this. Hey, by chance, I happened to be in Mariupol in the Ukraine. No, you don't happen to be there. You're there for a reason, right? That this is way sketchy. You don't just happen to be in the middle of a massive battle where these two armies are just coming together. So what was he doing there? He's a plunderer. That's what he is. The Amalekites are known for that. They plunder. It's like sometimes there's a riot. And what happens after the riot? People take advantage of that and they'll loot and pillage. He's someone that would do stuff like that. So David's like, hmm, antenna up. And I wonder if part of David is thinking to himself, if I would have stayed inside the Philistine army when this happened, I could have rallied my 600 men and we would have been like a fifth column that turned and just routed the enemy from the inside. Oh, why wasn't I there? So stop and think for a second. Saul's dead. The man that had been trying to murder, murder David for no one knows exactly how long, six, seven, possibly 10 years chasing him. He'd been run out of his own country. His wife had been taken by Saul and given to another man. The root cause of all of his ills is dead. If you were in David's sandals, how would you react? Because 600 men are right now watching David to see exactly how he's going to react. Do we throw a party right now? Like we've been on the run because of this guy. The Dow Jones is waiting. Is it gonna be a bear market or a bull market with this guy as leader? What he says right now is real important. Verse 11. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening, for Saul 
and for Jonathan his son, and for the people of Yahweh, and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. I love that. People are always watching leaders. How do you respond? And when David responds that way, it says all of his men did the same thing. They were waiting. How do we take this news? Now, what would the natural response be to this? It'd be like, yeah! Woohoo! The wicked witch of the West is dead. Let's party. Give the Amalekite a reward. Woohoo! An attaboy. This is awesome. Why doesn't David respond that way? Because David, what you see in his life is he does not care about personal, personal advancement. That's never been like David's core motivation in life. It's not about David. It's not about his advancement. What David always puts at the forefront is God's name. God's name has been damaged by this battle. What he puts at the forefront is God's people. God's people have been hurt by this. And the nation of Israel. That David lived for something bigger than himself. And because of that, he always had a true north that directed himself. And so now he responds correctly the way that he should respond, the way that God would respond. Because God says in Ezekiel 18, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Neither does David. I take no pleasure in this. Even though he was a man trying to murder me, I take no pleasure in it. Proverbs 24, 17 says, don't, don't be gleeful when your enemy loses. New Testament, Romans 12, 19. Don't be overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Like that's always been the heart of God. And David here is demonstrating that. I'm, I'm not gleeful for this. So I can just imagine this Amalekite going, uh-oh, didn't see that coming. I don't think I read this room right. Like, I gotta go right now. Um, I got a camel that needs to be milked. And, uh, you know, God bless you and God bless Israel. I'm out of here. But here's what happens, verse 13. And David said to the young man who told him, where did you come from? And he answered, I am the son of of a sojourner, very important, an Amalekite. And David said to him, how is it you are not afraid to put out your hand to destroy Yahweh's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, go execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, your blood be on your head for your own mouth has testified against you saying, I have killed Yahweh's anointed. David's first question, huge question, who are you? He says, I am a sojourner. Here's what a sojourner was. Here's what that means. It's someone who, not an Israelite, but they were born in Israel and they lived in Israel. So he would have known the laws and the rules and he would have known who Saul is. So that's why David asked, do you know what you just did? Do you understand that? Because the Bible makes this really clear. No one is judged on something they do not know. You will never be judged based on light you were never exposed to. 
Jesus puts it like this in Luke chapter 12, 47 and 48. He says, there's these two servants. One of them knows the master's will. One of them knows everything the master has asked of him, but he does the opposite. He gets drunk and beats other people up and just a bad dude. Another guy has no idea about the master's will, does the same stuff. When the master comes back, the one that knew the master's will, but did the opposite, will be punished greatly. The one that did not know, but did the same stuff worthy of that punishment, won't be punished. Because you're not gonna be judged based on what you do not know. So David, first of all, is asking this guy, dude, did you know what you just did? Okay. Now he lied, no doubt, but he says, your own mouth has testified against you. Your words condemn you. And death row in David's kingdom doesn't last very long. It's pretty instantaneous. Kills him. This is not a flannel graph. David is a, a, a bloody, brutal man. It's why he can't build the temple, right? You'll get to that. We'll get to it. God says, no, you got blood in your hands. My temple's a temple of shalom and peace. Your son, whose name is literally peace, he's the one that can build it. He's a warrior, brought up for this time to be a warrior. And the reason I think David responds so strongly is this. Twice he refused to do the same thing to Saul. Twice he had the opportunity to take out vengeance. Twice he could have done this, and he did not do it because of a couple things. Number one is this. Murder must always be punished. You can't let people get away. I don't care if someone wants to do suicide, David would say. It doesn't matter if they're Dr. Kevorkian. I don't care. Murder still must be punished. Number two, David will not reward a murderer. In the coming kingdom that David's gonna rule, he says, I'm not gonna reward people that murder. And then finally, number three, the normal way that regimes changed at this time in history was the king would get murdered. And David is saying, no way. Israel is not going to have regime change through this kind of habit that the other nations do where they kill the old king and all of his sons. That's not happening in this new thing. We trust God to raise up and to put down, and we trust him. So that's why he reacts this way. And note what David says about Saul. He calls him, verse 14, Yahweh's anointed. The guy that's coming after David day after day, week after week, month after month, trying to kill him. David said he's Yahweh's anointed. We have to be careful how we speak about people that are in authority. And I am terrible at this as well. So this convicted me. They're the Lord's anointed. Bringing even closer. We're supposed to pray for them. Bring even closer. Your boss is the Lord's anointed. Do you know that? I don't think so, Matt. He's the Lord's anointing. That's what my boss is. <laughs> David needed the work of Saul to make him into the king that he's to become. Without what Saul did for him, the chasing and the getting to the point of encouraging himself in the Lord, with all that, without all that, David would not be the king that becomes the benchmark for every other king. 
that God had anointed Saul to move David into the kind of character that he needed to rule Israel. And so that's why David could say, he's the Lord's anointed. When you can trust God that way, no one's got you, do you know that? No boss can get you, no neighbor can get you, no one can get you. Man, all right, I trust God in this situation. And I just wanna graduate. I wanna graduate. Whatever I need to learn from this situation, I wanna graduate. I wanna learn to encourage myself in the Lord no matter what my circumstances look like, no matter how difficult it is. He, she is the Lord's anointed. Verse 17, and David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son. I love, David in death writes a song. Why does he do that? Because he's a songwriter, right? A lot of us don't know what to do when someone dies. I say, you do what you're good at. One of my favorite stories is of Beethoven when Beethoven started to lose his hearing and conversations became very difficult for Beethoven to have with people. And one of his best friends, this best friend, his son died. And Beethoven knew that going over and trying to have a conversation with this man would be impossible because he couldn't hear anymore. So the story goes that Beethoven slipped into this man's house, found his piano, and just started to play the piano. And he played the piano for like 45, 50 minutes. And then when he was done, he just slipped back out of the house and left. And that man wrote to Beethoven later and said, that was the most meaningful visit I ever had. You do what you're good at. Good at mowing a lawn? Go over and mow the person's lawn, right? You do what you're good at. That's what I'm good at writing a song, so I'm gonna bless this person in the death that's happened by doing what I'm good at. I'm gonna write a song. And he said, verse 18, it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jasher. And he said, this is the number one tribute in the Bible for someone's death. There's nothing close to it. It's David writing about Saul, the guy that tried to pin him to a wall twice with a spear, the guy that took 3,000 armed men and chased him into caves, hunted him. If you were writing a song about someone that did, to you, did that to you, what would your song sound like? If looks could kill, you'd be writhing on the ground. Any Taylor Swift song about an ex-boyfriend, right? Now, David, listen to this. Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high place. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath, Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. David said, I hope they don't hear this news because they'll celebrate. The enemy will celebrate. I remember when 9-11 happened, September 11th, 2001. There was just a couple countries where people danced in the street over that. And I remember just watching people like, how can you celebrate this? That's what David's saying. I don't want there to be celebrations of something so tragic and hard. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you. 
nor fields of offerings, for the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul not anointed with oil. David says right here, the earth should be different because of the death of Saul and Jonathan. Have you ever had someone close to you die? In the day or days afterwards, there is something that's inside of you that thinks like, everybody should be crying right now. The earth should be crying. No one should be going about their regular business. Are you kidding, right? There's something in us like, are you, don't you know what happened? And you can't believe people are just going on with their life. The earth is still rotating. It's like everything should stop and screech. Don't you realize that's what David is saying right here. This is not right. Why do we have that? Because death is unnatural. Do you know that? You and I were never designed to die. We are designed to live eternally in God's presence, running, being fueled by it. And that's why we, that's why we resist death so much today, right? That's why we run on a treadmill. That's why we take multivitamins. We're trying to outrun death because it's unnatural. It's the only reason why people eat kale, trying to outrun death. There is no other reason, I'm telling you. <laughs> This is David, he's just, he's voicing it in poem. Like, the mountain should be different. And every person that's lost somebody close to them can sense that in the days afterwards. Something should change right now. People should not be living normally because there was a death. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, the sword of Saul returned not back empty. He talks about the shield of Saul being oiled in verse 21. He talks about this kind of blood of the slain, the fat of the mighty, just kind of, ugh, right? So they had these, these shields back then were just thick leather, and they put all this kind of grease and oil on them so that swords would glance off of them. But instead of being these shiny, beautiful shields of battle, now they're bloody, and there's fat on them, and bone on them, and flesh, and it's just like, ugh, It's brutal, it's Lord of the Rings. But even in the midst of this, David says they stayed. There was no retreat. And Jonathan, if you know him, he's the son every dad wants. Completely different than his dad. Polar opposite. And Jonathan, loyal, stands with his dad to death. What a brilliant man. I cannot wait to meet Jonathan in New Jerusalem. Brilliant, brilliant man. Your daughters of Israel, verse 24, weep over Saul who clothed you in luxurious scarlet, who put ornaments of gold in your, on your apparel. So David could have demonized Saul because judgment was happening. They lost that battle because of Saul's stupidity. He doesn't. Instead he says, listen, all of us have enjoyed prosperity because of Saul's leadership. You're wearing nice clothes right now. You've got gold because of Saul's leadership. He discovered the good in what Saul had done. What a great way to live. How the mighty have fallen, verse 26. 25, excuse me, in the midst of the battle. Jonathan 
lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. David talks about his relationship with Jonathan. And he says, your love for me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. And so there's this accusation against David and Jonathan that they were homosexual. The reason why that accusation is made today is because we as a culture believe that sex is the greatest of all the loves. Eros is the greatest of all the loves. So if you see anything that's great love, well, it must mean Eros is there. So that's why people say that. Is Eros the greatest of all loves? No. The New Testament uses this word for the greatest of all loves. It's called agape. That agape is the greatest of all loves. Nothing is more than that. Maybe it's why the New Testament says this, and it sometimes upsets people. Jesus talking about heaven says, hey, in heaven, we're gonna be like the angels. There's no marriage. And people are like, you mean I won't be married in heaven? I won't be married to my bride? I won't be married to my stud? I'm not gonna be married in heaven? Nope. And some people are really upset about that. And other people are like, praise the Lord. Come quickly. <laughs> It's the best news ever. <laughs> and the reason for all this kind of struggle is we don't realize there's gonna be greater love than you and I can imagine. A love that surpasses that. And that's what David is expressing, that he found that with his companion that he'd gone to war with and they'd gone to battle with. You talk to men who have been in trenches and fought together, there is a bond that's different than any other bond. Because often they are literally agoping, putting the life of that other person before their own. They're doing exactly what agape is. And it forms a bond that's so brilliant and so strong and so amazing. And this is what David is saying. I had this with Jonathan. Oh, oh, that all of us might have a friend like that. So two things and we'll be done. Number one, David in this entire chapter demonstrates forgiveness to a man who had really, really done him wrong. He did not sing a song, ding dong, the witched, wicked witches. He didn't do that. He didn't say, ah, don't worry, be happy because Saul is dead. He doesn't do that. There's no bitter. There's no grudge. There's no anger. He is free because he's forgiven. He knows Agape. Let me read for you what agape is. Listen to this. You don't have to turn there. But it's the definition of the highest love that you and I can have. Love, agape in the Greek, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. 
It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. David was free because he loved Saul. Number two, his witness. The best witness you will ever have is not with your friends, not with your good buddies. The best witness you will ever have is with your enemies. Do you know that? Listen to the words of Jesus. We quote part of this very often, but we don't quote the whole thing, so I'm gonna read it for you. It's Matthew chapter five. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and send rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You, therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Your best witness is not with your buddies because everybody does that. Our best witness like David is with the people that hunt us down and try to kill us, figuratively or literally. That's your best witness. How do you treat them? David unbelievably, incredibly treats the man that wanted to murder him so kindly, so agapingly that the song that David sing, sings right here, his words, he's trying to mold a culture in Israel. This is how we treat even our enemies. And it's brilliant. And I think it's why David is a man after God's own heart. And I pray that I do the same thing, that my witness is the best for those that have treated me the worst. So Jesus, we know that David is not perfect. We've seen his shortcomings, but we also see your brilliance shining through him. We see your agape in him. We see your forgiveness in him. We see a witness that shines out not just to his 600 men, not just to the nation of Israel, but to the world about how to treat an enemy. I pray that each of us in here today that might have a lurking enemy in our head, that with our words and with our ways, 
we try to slay them. With our thoughts, with a little lawyer in our head, we're always doing battle with them. I pray that today, by the power of your spirit, we would forgive them. That we be sons and daughters of our heavenly Father, loving our enemies and those that persecute us. So we would be free. And a powerful witness would come out from every person that's sitting in this room. And we know we can't do that apart from you. So we pray that your spirit would fill us, reminding us of how much you've loved us, how much you've forgiven us, how much you've agaped us, and that we just get in that flow of your love and it would empower us to love other people. So would you send us out today as an army, as warriors, shielded up with your agape and your forgiveness and your love and to be a mighty witness on Thursday and Friday and Saturday and this month and this year in Grants Pass. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you guys.